Today we're going to finish out, we've been talking about the four agreements, and we're going to finish out with the fourth agreement, which is do your best. <laughs> so we talked about being harmless or impeccable with your words, making sure, or doing our best, let's put it that way, doing our best to be loving in our speech, not only to other people, but also to ourselves, and especially in the way that we talk to ourselves about ourselves, right? So that's going to improve our quality of life. And then the second agreement was don't take things personally, right? Am I right? That's the second one. Don't take things personally, uh, which is easy to do. I'm going to talk about that a little bit uh, and weave it into the fourth agreement in a little bit. The third one was uh, never make assumptions. <laughs> and you kind of see how these all will work together. And then the fourth one is to do your best. But I want to go ahead and look at Scripture before we really dive into it. I want to look at two passages, one from the Old Testament and one from the New Testament. I want to look at, from the Old Testament, the book of Deuteronomy. Uh, <clears throat> excuse me. Deuteronomy 28. First verse. If you fully obey the Lord your God... And carefully follow all of his commands I give you today. The Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. And all these blessings will come on you and accompany you if, if you obey the Lord your God. And then if you'd come with me to verse 15 of Deuteronomy 28, it says, However, if you do not obey the Lord your God and do not carefully follow all his commands and decrees I am giving you today, then all these curses will come on you and overtake you. Now, it's interesting because there's only um, 14 verses of blessing. <laughs> but included in that blessing is financial blessing, which would come as the result of rain. Because remember, you're dealing with ancient people who are dependent upon the elements. Uh, who are? It's an agricultural society. And so the way the, uh, God's blessing was understood was the, the blessing of the rain and whatever that came down upon the crops, right? And then the other thing was, particularly if you were an agricultural uh, community, you had to be able to fight to protect what you had. Because there were neighboring tribes that perhaps weren't as blessed in their ability to uh, prosper. And so you had to be able to protect what you had from your enemies. So when God's laying out the blessings, he's promising them that there will be abundant blessing, but he's also promising them protection from their enemies. Yes. Then you get to verse 15 and you've got the rest of the chapter. So if you look at it verse wise, the chapter goes to verse 68. <laughs> so you got 14 verses of blessing. And then if you mess up and you disobey, you've got and the rest of the 68 chapters or whatever is all the curses that are going to come on you. And, uh, and these horrible descriptions. But included in that is that the heavens are going to be shut up and there's going to be no rain. Are you tracking with me? So your blessing, your prosperity is going to dry up. And then the second thing is, is that your enemies will come against you and they'll totally defeat you. They'll come in and totally destroy your city. They'll come in and totally destroy your temple. And they'll carry you off into captivity because you were disobedient. Right? Now, come with me to the book of Matthew. And we're going to see something that Jesus said that's very interesting. Matthew chapter 5. Verses 43 through 48 says, You've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. 
But I tell you to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Watch this. That you may be children of your Father in heaven. Watch it. He causes His Son to rise on the evil and the good, and He sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Jesus totally contradicts Moses. Because Moses' record is, if you obey, God sends rain. If you disobey, God closes up the heavens. Jesus says, that's not true. God causes it to rain on the good and the evil. He blesses the just and the unjust. So Jesus contradicts Moses. Everybody smile at me. Anybody ever heard, say, well, one of the... Oh, why am I going here? I'm going to go here anyway. We are, we, it's, it's, it's interesting to me that for some of us, and I was this way for a lot of years, so this is not a criticism, this is an observation, all right? That we as evangelical Christians exalt and, and scripture that we don't read. That we don't read or look at with honesty or integrity. That we don't understand. Now here's how I can say that. Because you, you guys, anybody that's been here um, for a while know that I was pretty knowledgeable of Scripture from the beginning. In fact, the one thing that we heard repeatedly more than any other throughout all our years of existence was... Um, when people, when I would teach people to come and say, nobody's able to open up the scriptures like you do. Um, or I would hear if, if somebody would disagree with me, they would always start out with, well, I don't know my Bible like you do. But the number one thing we heard from people, even Christians, no matter how long they were believers, they'd say, I've been a believer 10 years, I've been a believer 30, 40, 50 years, and um, I've learned more and grown more as a believer and grown more in my walk with the Lord in the whatever nine months or year or whatever that I've been here than at any other time. If, if that's true, yes? I didn't know my Bible. And I'll tell you why. There was a leader in our, in, in a, a Christian leader that uh, was very admired and respected who completely um, abandoned, uh, and he was very powerful in signs and wonders and different things, but he completely abandoned the faith and began to teach something else. And I knew people that were close to him, and so I was curious, how does that happen? <laughs> and what they, they said, well, he read a couple of books, and they weren't Christian books. And so I went and I decided, I'm going to read these books because I really need to know what is going on. How many of you have ever heard somebody say the Bible contradicts itself? And we have all kinds of ways of defending against that, all kinds of arguments, and I knew them all. And I opened up this book, and this book isn't specifically about a knock on Christianity. It was about this thick. And it, was, it just painted a different picture of uh, life, obviously. But there was a section about this thick that addressed the Bible, and I read through that section, and what it did was it pointed out all the contradictions that are actually in the Bible. Now, a contradiction is, 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 a, is exactly that. It is a contradiction. 
So on the one hand, you've got Moses saying that God blesses obedience and curses disobedience by whether or not he sends rain or doesn't send rain. It's a principle, right? Can't, it can't, <laughs> very clear, right? Yeah, in the New Testament you have Jesus saying God's not like that at all. And, it, and if you're going to be a children, if you're going to be offspring of the Father, then you need to pr- love your enemies. Because God blesses, God causes it to rain on the good and the evil. He blesses the just and the unjust. That's, that's an irreconcilable statement. And our Bible is full of them. It is. So how, so what, what does that mean for us then? So that sent me on a journey where I was like, okay, I've got to go back and I've got to look at some things and I've got to reevaluate some things and I've got to be a more diligent stu- student of the scriptures than I ever have been. And here's what I discovered. Here's what I discovered. You know, it's interesting because you do realize that Christianity came out of Judaism. Yes? Just, just say Judaism with me. What does that sound like? Judaism. Right? And you do realize that the Jews had the scriptures long before us. In fact, they gave the scriptures to Christians. And so when you look at the Old Testament, just the Old Testament, not even the New Testament, when you look at the Old Testament from a rabbinic perspective, from a genuinely Jewish perspective, what you discover is is that they do not read Scripture the same way we read Scripture. The way they view Scripture, the way they view the Old Testament, is that it is multi-vocal, and it is a collection of opinions and ideas about what God is like. So on the one hand, in uh, the Torah, you have God commanding sacrifice for sin, right? But long before the New Testament comes, you have places in Hosea and other prophets where it says, I didn't tell you to sacrifice. So they, they've been dealing with the fact that there's this multivocal thing that's going on. And so here's the other thing we need to understand. There were 12 tribes in Israel. Everybody say 12. Judaism only represents one tribe. Jewish only represents Judah. Not all of Israel, because not all of Israel thought like Judah. And so here's what you find out when you really dig in and study. Here's what you find out. After the exile, when Babylon comes in, so, so you realize you got the story, right? Moses leads them out of Egypt, all the tribes. Joshua leads them into the promised land, but doesn't conquer like everything like he was told. Then you go through this long period of the judges where uh, sometimes things are good for them and sometimes things are not so good for them, right? Then finally, you have the age of the kings. You have David who comes along. And what does David do? David does what Joshua and none of the judges ever did. He drives all the inhabitants out of the land and conquers the entire promised land and establishes the kingdom. And that's why David was so important 
in Israel. Then you have Solomon, who takes over the reign, but Solomon does all these compromise, political compromises. Yeah, that's not appropriate to say. His marriages were, his marriages were political compromises. It wasn't that he was... Anyway, <clears throat> you get the point. To maintain the kingdom, right? If you read Chronicles, you read Kings, they tell the story completely differently. Because one's being written from a Jewish perspective, and the other's being written from the perspective of the other tribes. So one makes Solomon look like a hero, the other makes Solomon look like an oppressor. So then the kingdoms divide. You already see that happening in the way the scriptures are put together. The kingdoms divide, and Israel, the, the, the ten tribes which are referred to as Israel, are completely defeated and dispersed and lost. That's why they talk about the lost tribes of Israel. But you've got the northern kingdoms, which is Benjamin and Judah. They stay intact until Babylon comes. And when Babylon comes, now see, here was the promise. Israel will not fail to have a king who sits on the throne. Are you tracking with me? But then Babylon comes in and destroys their kingdom, destroys their temple and carries them into captivity. And now they have to totally restructure their thinking about God and his promises because it appears that God has completely abandoned them and not kept any of his promises and especially not kept his promise that there will always be a king on the throne. So that in Babylonian captivity, there is a tremendous transition that happens in their thinking. Now, this is going to challenge you a little bit, but I want you to think about this. After Deuteronomy, Moses is not mentioned maybe, maybe one or two times. After Deuteronomy, through the rest of the book. Because Moses is not the key figure. And the law is not the key thing. The key figure in Israel is the king. It's David. And the religion doesn't center around the Torah and the keeping of the law. The religion centers around the temple. Which is why all throughout the judges and all throughout the kings, the good kings worshipped God. The bad kings <laughs> defiled the temple and brought in idols. So what was central to the religion of Israel, I'm making a distinction between Israel and Judah, what was central to the religion of Israel was the presence of God in the temple and their worship and their king. Now they're in Babylonian captivity and the king is dead. And they've got to make sense of what happened. And so Judaism is incubated in Babylon. How do they come back? I hadn't planned on getting into all this, but I just feel it to go that way. Is that all right? Because it ties into doing our best. How, does it, how, how do they come back? When you start to read that part of the Bible, it's the book of Ezra, the book of Nehemiah. So Ezra was a scribe. So Ezra comes back. This is the most fascinating thing. 
Ezra comes back, he brings the people, and he reads the book of the law. He reads Deuteronomy, and they keep the Passover. And it's after Ezra that Moses and the Torah become the central figures in the religion of Judah. So Jesus comes as the Word of God made flesh. So watch this. See, the Bible is a very divine book, but it's also a very human book. It really is. And so you have this concept, even going back to the time of Christ, that there are multiple opinions about who God is in the Scriptures. That it's an argument. If you read the Gospel of John with that in mind, then it makes sense when he says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And all things were made by Him, and without Him nothing was made that has been made. And in Him was life, and the life was the light. Or in Him was, is it life and light? Anyway. In Him was, yeah, in Him was life, and the life was the light of all mankind. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness cannot overcome it. And the Word became flesh and tabernacled among us. And we beheld His glory. Because what's happening is John's coming back and saying that the presence has become central again. The law came through Moses. Read John chapter 1. The law came through Moses, but grace and truth has come by Jesus Christ. So that Jesus is God's voice in the argument about what God's like. He's the Word who's become flesh. And to a first century Jew, he came to restore the presence of God. That's why the outpouring of the Spirit is so emphasized in John's book and none of the other Gospels. Because once again, the presence of the Spirit and the Shekinah glory would become central and displace obedience to the law. I have come for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. I didn't just come as a Jew. And then he makes it even more radical. Paul makes it even more radical. Because as long as you've just got Jesus as the Jewish Messiah, it's still just a Jewish religion. It's still just an, it's a Hebraic. See, there's a difference between Jewish and Hebraic. Hebraic is all-inclusive of the tribes. Are you tracking with me? Yep. So then Paul comes and says, Jesus wasn't just the Messiah to the Hebrews or to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. He was the Messiah to the whole world. Wow. See it? So the way that question bears down on us is how then do we live a life that pleases God? Because see... The Jews had to make sense of why did the Babylonian captivity happen? 
And when Jesus shows up, they've got to make sense of why are we still in Roman captivity? Why is there no presence in the Holy of Holies? Because the Holy of Holies was totally empty. They still had to make sense of that. So what they said was, we've been disobedient. We have disobeyed God. That's why we're cursed. That's why all the arguing in the New Testament is over minutia of what it means to keep the Sabbath. And what it means in the dietary laws, whether or not you eat with a Gentile. Because if you eat with a Gentile, you're eating unkosher food. Because we have to keep all these laws and rules and regulations. Because that's how we're going to get the blessing of God back. And Jesus steps into that culture. He says, no, it's not really like that. It's about love. And it's about love that's so radical that it becomes love for your enemies. God's not like Moses said he was at all. Or like the Jews say that Moses said he was. God is like this. God is love. So let's dial it back a little bit. Let's come back to doing your best. Because see... That used to torment me. You know, do your best, do your best. Like even when I was reading the book, it was really helping me, some of the things in the book. And I'm reading the book and, and uh, the fourth agreement in the book, the four agreements is do your best. And I'm like, it just elevated my anxiety level. Because <laughs> you've got to understand, I mean, my mom, you know, she did her best to encourage us to be all that we could be or to be our best. And... It came from a place of love, and it came from a really good place inside of her. But sometimes it has to do with how you hear things and how you apply things. And so with my mom, if you got a B, if you worked really hard, the next time you could get an A. And I remember one time getting an A on a spelling test, but, you know, I missed a couple of words. So, you know, maybe I got, uh, uh, out of 20 words, maybe I got one or two wrong, right? Still 90%, I still get an A. But she says, you know, if you study even harder, the next time you can get all the words right. Do you, I mean, do you see how she's just trying to encourage me? So, so, but what happened, the way I ingested that was my best became an impossible task. Because you, no matter how much you did, you could always do more. No matter how well you did, you could always do better. And so you end up living this life of anxiety <laughs> and stress over your performance because you're wondering, you're wondering, you, you got to, but see, the way I was hearing that was be the best. The, the, the emphasis for me was on best. I heard do your best, do your best. But if we could just totally reframe that and hear it as do your best. Do your best. Because then we begin to realize that our best, and I'll, bring, I'll tie this in with what I was saying about Scripture in a minute, but doing your best, doing your best fluctuates. It fluctuates. I'm not my, if, if I'm, have taken enough vitamin B, and I've drunk enough water, and I've exercised, and my circulation is good, and I've had, and I just won Best of Pueblo. <laughs> and I'm feeling really good and really positive, and I go to do something 
then my best is going to be more productive. Can we agree on that? If I find out someone I love just died, and I'm in grief, and I can only focus on that, and I haven't been sleeping, and not remembering to drink water and didn't take my supplements, and I do the same job, is the productivity going to be the same? But can I still do my best that I can in that moment with the hand that I've been dealt? Absolutely. So see, you got to understand, best is not measured out here. When I hear do your best, it's measured out here. When I hear do your best, it's measured in here. And it really does take away all the pressure. Because I can realize my best today may not be as productive as my best is going to be tomorrow. Or my best tomorrow might be more productive than my best was today. But see, here's the thing. I've got to get my eyes off of my productivity. I've got to get my eyes off my productivity and back on to my own personal empowerment. Which means... I have to quit thinking about things in terms of reward and punishment. I have to quit thinking about things in that way. See, it's interesting to me that, that we, we spent a lot of time in the last few weeks talking about how we punish ourselves internally when we make mistakes. And that's what forgiveness is all about. See, Jesus brought a message while they're crucifying him. He brings a message of, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Not, Father, curse them because they've been disobedient. See how he's, he's completely upending things. Right? So forgiveness is an important aspect of our faith. To know that I can mess up and be forgiven is a really important part of what we do. And love and forgiveness is an important part of love. And the first person I have to learn to love, if I'm here to learn to love, the first person I have to learn to love is myself. So if I internalize a standard, if I have my own book of the law that I'm living by, then when I mess it up, I, there's a judge inside me that judges me according to that book and says, you did wrong. <laughs> and you need to be, and because he's a judge, there needs to be punishment. But because it was me, there then becomes a part of me that has to receive the punishment. And so I stop being impeccable with my word and I start beating myself up. Oh, that was stupid. Oh, come on, you can... <sighs> What's wrong with me? So all that sense of powerlessness, all that sense of hopelessness, all that that comes from all that internal junk. The, in the book, The Four Agreements, they call it the parasite. It, it doesn't have a life of its own. It can just suck the life out of you. But that's how the parasite gets created. And so we can think, okay, so then we can think, okay, I'm just, I'm going to quit punishing and I'm going to quit thinking about when I mess up and I'm going to quit thinking about, you know, trying to live up to some standard. But, but there's a flip side to that and that is the reward that comes when you do it right. And see, that's actually more deceptive. Eve was never tempted with the knowledge of evil. God didn't say, don't, if you eat at the tree of the knowledge of evil, in that day you're going to die. No, he, he, she was tempted with the knowledge of good and evil. And I'd like to suggest to you that the good is much more deceptive and much more deadly than the evil is. 
Because, because you're still attaching things to outcomes. If I'm good, I'll be rewarded. And so what happens to us is we end up living life looking for an outcome and, and, and the good in our life, the happiness in our life, the blessing in our life, the abundance in our life, the peace in our life, the, the enjoyment of our life is all attached to an outcome. And I'll tell you how that works. A lot of people work 9 to 5 or 8 to 3 or whatever, 40 hours a week or more at a job that they hate for a paycheck waiting for the weekend when they can drown their sorrows from all the stuff from the week. (laughs) Right? And so they're doing something that they hate. Stay in relationships that they hate. Stay in, stay in situations that they hate. Do things in church that they hate doing, but they think God's going to reward them because they did it. <laughs> I hate doing this, and it's really a sacrifice, but I'll have my reward when I get to heaven. And Jesus, Jesus completely upends that, that the cross, the, the message of the cross completely upends that because here's Jesus who did everything right and yet he dies as a criminal. He dies as a liar, as a blasphemer and as a wrongdoer based on Jewish law and Roman government and he dies as God incarnate, as, as the son of God and yet he refuses to call the angels to rescue him to get his justice. He refuses to retaliate and punish those who have rejected him. So he's not using his power, his divine power or divine coercion or divine punishment to get people to obey him and follow him because it's his statement, his declaration as the word made flesh that that is not what God is like. But on the same hand, He does not offer reward to get you to follow Him. He does not say, come and follow me. And yeah, you may suffer in this life, but one fine day when... when How's that song go? Um, Huh? Yeah, one fine day when this life is over, I'll fly away. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say, follow me and suffer, but you'll, you'll, you know, you'll have a mansion in glory. You don't find that in the Scriptures. You find that in our hymns. But you don't find it in the Bible. Instead, he says, if you're going to follow me, forsake all you have, unless you're willing to forsake all you have, unless you're willing to take your cross and follow me, forget it. You cannot be my disciple. You realize that's in your Bible. What's he doing? Is he, is he, a, is he, a, is he a masochist? Is he, <laughs> you, you, can only, you, you prove your love for him by just you know, torturing yourself? No, he's trying to elevate consciousness out of this framework of punishment and blessing. And bring you and I and his followers into a framework of relationship based on being, based on love, and based on giving. Because see, here's the thing. As long as you put yourself under God's punishment and reward system, You'll always do things with with the thought in mind, what am I going to get and what am I going to receive? Am I going to receive blessing or am I going to receive punishment? 
Am I going to receive abundance or am I going to receive lack? Am I going to receive healing or am I going to receive sickness? Because that was in those chapters in Deuteronomy too. You see it? What if you, what if it's a total reframe? What if, what if God so loved the world that He gave Himself? He, He gave His only begotten Son. And what if, what if doing your best is getting engaged in life by honoring yourself and realizing I'm, I'm here and God sent me here as a gift. God, God sent me here with something to give. And, and my enjoyment comes from experiencing myself and doing what I love as a gift rather than thinking about what I'm going to get as, a, as an outcome for it. In other words, I take myself out of, I'm going to do this because I'm going to get this outcome, and I put myself in the place of, I'm going to do this because I'm going to enjoy the journey. I'm going to do this for the love. See, if God is love, why should you do something you hate? How are you even abiding in God? God is love, and those who love abide in God. Those who don't abide in love don't know God and aren't of God. But I'm going to do all this stuff I hate in hopes of a reward. You can't abide in love if you don't do what you love. Not from guilt, not from obligation, not from condemnation or shame or fear or punishment. Love. So the whole reason I decided to go through this book, honestly, you know, I mean, you guys know I took a sabbatical in January and you've heard our story if you've been around. For those of you that haven't, did we leave in January? I left in March. Take a sabbatical from March to June because about August of last year, I figured out I'm totally burnt out. I'm totally spent and I hate what I'm doing. I don't get any enjoyment out of it anymore. And there's all kinds of religious trappings that come with that, you know. Um, well, you're serving God. Well, you need to be faithful. Well, what about the people? What about being a good shepherd? And here's, here's why this was so powerful for me. Because you know why I got burnt out? Because I'm a sensitive soul. <laughs> I am. But, like, you know, I realized something this, this week. <laughs> Sometimes I, I, I'm amazed at myself. But it, it's good to be able to laugh at yourself. You realize laughing at yourself is good, good, right? And telling your, tell on yourself the dumb things you do. I learned that from my dad. Those of you that knew my dad know what I'm talking about. So because of the events of the week, uh, particularly Monday and Tuesday, I didn't, didn't sleep. So literally I was going on 48 hours, no sleep. And I was sitting in my chair and I stand up and I have this like shock that goes through my leg and like this, this painful, sharp, tingly feeling on the ball of my foot. And I think to myself, that's probably circulation because it felt like my foot had kind of gone to sleep and was numb down there or whatever. I thought maybe my circulation's affected because I haven't slept. So, you know, I'm expecting it to go away and I'm doing this and, 
And the whole day it didn't go away. <laughs> and so I'm walking, and I probably walked five miles that day because I was coming out of my skin. I couldn't sit. And so, and the whole time I'm walking, it's like I'm walking on needles, you know, and that's circulation. And I'm putting that out of my It's probably just because I haven't slept. It's because I haven't slept. So later that night, I take my shoes off and I take my sock off. And when I take my sock off, there's a needle about this big. And about a half an inch of it is embedded into the ball of my foot. And so I don't know, maybe my kids did that as a practical joke, you know, that we'll stick this in dad's shoe and, and it, it took till then or, or whatever. But, but I was literally walking on a needle, right? This has nothing to do with anything. No, yes, it does. And, and here's what I realized. Realized something because of what I was processing. I realized something about relationships and I realized something about myself as a human being. <clears throat> the rest of me felt fine. I had no pain anywhere else in my body. The one place that was uncomfortable was the ball of my foot. And it got most of my attention. I didn't think about what was... I mean... All but that much of me physically feels fine. That much of me, you understand what I'm saying? Because that's about how much was embedded in my foot <laughs> while I'm walking. God, my circulation. I'm going to get my blood flowing. <laughs> I'm doing this all day. But what do I focus on? I focus on the one thing that's uncomfortable. So I realized as human beings, we do that. We, we focus on the one thing that we're uncomfortable with. We focus on the one thing that's wrong. And we forget about everything else that feels good. It's kind of like personalizing things. Because see, here's what I would do as a sensitive soul in ministry. Preach a message like this, and I'd have two or three people, because invariably the way I preach, somebody gets upset. Just is what it is. Every Sunday, you know. If it's not someone here, it's someone on the Internet sending me hate mail. It's not that bad. But I may have 30 people. I may have, I may have hundreds of people when it's all said and done, Blessed and touched by what I said. But I'll have one or two people that will come up and say, I agree with that. Or uh, what, you shouldn't wear a shirt. I mean, this, these are real examples. You shouldn't wear a shirt that shows your label. That's not very humble. started to tell the story in the last service about how I cried at my dad's funeral. And I had people come up all upset that I was crying. Because don't you know he's in heaven? But they were probably trying to comfort me. Seriously. But what I would do, see, so here's what I would do. I would make assumptions. They're not trying to comfort me. They're judging me. They're doing it because of me. Then I would take it personally. My God, don't they know that my dad just died? Don't they know that I haven't slept for almost two weeks? Can't they give me a little bit of grace? I guess I just don't measure up. Yeah. 
And so I take it personally. So then what happens? Then I'm not impeccable with my word. Then I'm not... <laughs> then I'm beating up on myself. Man, if I was really serving God, there'd be more people coming. If I was really serving God, there'd be more fruitfulness. There'd be more life. There'd be more gifts of the Spirit flowing and operating. There'd be whatever. I must really suck. (laughs) But we all do it. We all do it. So I get to this point in... August, where I'm just fed up with it all. January, by March, it's like, okay, I just need to pull back and take a break. And honestly, it was a break, but honestly, it was a time to totally reevaluate, because I think I was going through a midlife crisis at the same time. And those are good things, actually. It's a really good thing. You you realize that you have limited time, and you wake up and you think, is this really how I want to live the rest of my life? And you have to reevaluate things. It's a gift, not a crisis. So I go away thinking, I don't know if I want to do this anymore. I've got degrees. I've got other job opportunities. I turned down two jobs with uh, District 60 just this fall. But other things that I could do. And I'm reading that book, and I realize this is what's killing me. <laughs> it's not the ministry. It's not my wife and my marriage. It's not the things that I wish that I would have done but didn't do. It's not decisions from my past. It's I'm not being harmless or impeccable with my words to myself about myself. And it's that I'm making assumptions about what people think that go beyond what I actually know. And it's that I'm taking personally every little bit of discomfort and criticism just like I was focused on that needle that was in my foot but forgetting about all the other good stuff. Forgetting about all the rest of me that felt good. But then I get to this chapter, do your best. It's like, I can't. Because do your best, not do your best. You see the difference? Am I making the point? And I'm thinking, I, I pretty much decided I'm done with ministry. I'm going to come back and just figure out something else to do. We'll get somebody else to pastor the church. It probably needs new leadership and fresh ideas anyways. Don't, just seriously, I mean, I was just, I was at that place. And I'm on the airplane and I read that chapter in that book about do your best. And here's what he said. He said, he talked about don't do things for the outcome. Do things because you love to do them. And he used the example that I just shared with you about people who work jobs that they hate to get money and, and basically live for the weekend. Like I grew up in the 80s, so every time I think about that, I think about that. You remember that Loverboy song? Everybody, everybody's working for the weekend. You know, they always play that on the radio. You could count at 5 o'clock. Every rock station on the planet was playing that song at 5 o'clock. Because, you know, we hate it and it stinks, but we're going to party on the weekend. What, whatever. Right, And he's using that kind of an illustration in the book. And I realized something about ministry. I've never done it for a paycheck. I've never done it for a paycheck. I don't even know what I make. My wife, that was, that was our marriage counseling. That we did personality tests. Our marriage counselor sat down and said, well, good luck. <laughs> he did. 
You're not very compatible. <laughs> I've only seen one other couple that was this un- incompatible, and you're worse than them, and I counsel them not to get married. But here's the advice I'd give you. Let her manage the checkbook. (laughs) So I've never thought about what I make in ministry. Today I don't even know. I couldn't even tell you. And I realized I've never done it for a paycheck. I've been pressured into doing it for other people's outcomes. See, if you're a good pastor, you're there at every death. You're there at every time somebody goes in the hospital. And take your pick. You're there to be God's light. But what if you're a sensitive soul who takes on everybody else's energies and you don't know what to do about that? And so you're constantly walking into situations and taking on other people's grief and other people's trauma into your nervous system. But that's doing your best. See, that's not doing your best. See, doing my best is realizing. And I had to tell somebody. I, I came back, and there was a, someone who had a death, and there was two deaths back to back. I came back. The first thing I did was a funeral for uh, Tierney. And I couldn't be there like I wanted to be, but I had to accept that. What I can do is my best. And that means I can't be at every crisis. But that's my best. And I realized, if I can just do my best, I love what I do. And so if somebody gets mad because I wasn't there when, you know, somebody died for them, then I wasn't able to meet that need. I don't have to take that personally. I can let that go and and make a decision. Do I go because I need to and then have to deal with my own accumulation of trauma? Or do I say, no, I'm not going. (laughs) So I make the decision, no, I'm not going. But that right there is like, I love helping people. I love serving people. I love serving God. I love what I do. I'm not doing it for a paycheck. I just got to figure out what my gifts are. Honor them and be able to do my best with what I can give. And that is so incredibly liberating and empowering. And understand... Do your best. God's not up there judging you, saying you have to meet this standard, and if you don't, you die. (laughs) You have to meet this standard if you want good things in your life. God is not like that. I wonder sometimes when there's tragedies, and leaders in our nation stand up and say, America's not supporting Israel, so therefore this tragedy happened. Or we've, you know, approved homosexual marriages, so therefore these tragedies are happening. Or on the other side of the aisle, we elected Donald Trump, (laughs) and so therefore these tragedies are happening. I wonder if they've ever read the Sermon on the Mount. Why aren't there prophets, leaders that get press time 
that can stand up and say, God's not like that. God causes it to rain on the just and the unjust. God blesses the good and the evil. And if you want to be like him, you'll do the same. But if I don't love me, and I don't love what I'm doing, and I'm all attached to the outcome, how can I possibly learn to love my enemy? Or, Well, let me say it this way. How can I possibly learn to love my neighbor? much less learn to love my enemy. So do what you love. (laughs) Do your best. Realize your best is going to be different from day to day. And when that boss is looking at you because you're not productive enough, you don't have to judge yourself. By their standard. You can honestly sit there and say, I'm doing my best. And I'm here to give and I'm here to serve. But I'm here to do my best, not your best. Even though you're the employee, you just took the power in that situation and owned it. And you know what? The outcomes will work themselves out. (laughs) New jobs will come. New opportunities will come. Because the world is looking for a giver and a servant. And God put something in you of value that is uniquely yours to give, uniquely yours to offer. You guys, everybody knew my mom. My mom's not here. If you don't know, she died uh, Monday. We got hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of messages, cards. Your mom made me feel so welcome. Your mom made me feel so loved. (laughs) If nobody, I had one person tell me, if nobody else in church was going to talk to me, I always knew your mom was going to talk to me. And I thought, you know what? I know for a fact, my mom came here every Sunday and gave her best. And you know what that did? That gave life. And her role wasn't prominent on the bulletins, which we don't have. (laughs) She wasn't a leader in that sense of the word. But she gave her best and it brought life. So I'll leave you with this. Something I read this week. A saint is not a moral exemplar, but a life giver. You don't have to be perfect. You just have to take your life and give it. And when you do that, it brings life to everybody around you. God bless you.